You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Tammy just prayed and confessed in her prayer the good news that God's word is true and for our good and, and it's stable and secure. And it's our conviction as a church that the most helpful thing that we can do with one another is sit under God's word together. And so week after week, we open God's word and we pick a portion of God's word and we, we read it. And then in, this, in the sermon, we meditate on it. We pull it apart and ask questions of the text and try to understand what God is saying in the text and what he has for us. And right now we're in Genesis and Genesis is uh, a narrative, a story. And because it's a narrative, some of the passages are, are a little bit longer and so today's portion of scripture is chapter 19. It's 38 verses, and I'm going to read all 38 verses. And that's a little bit long, but we just don't think there's anything better we can do with our Sunday morning than sit under God's word. And so this is a longer passage, and we're going to see it's not an uplifting passage. But nevertheless, we believe that God has good for us in this passage. So listen to God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. 
And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Genesis 19 is no one's favorite. It's not meant to be. It's ugly and heavy and dark. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth. The Bible all fits together as one cohesive story. And that story is good, beautiful, happy, deeply satisfying. If we think of the story of the Bible as a vast canvas, the overall picture is a beautiful, awe-inspiring, joy-inducing image. If, if every chapter of the Bible is a brush stroke in that vast canvas, this stroke is coal black. Many of the chapters in scripture are lovely, joyful colors, reds and blues and whites and oranges. Many of the images within the, within the painting, if we look at that vast canvas of scripture, many of the images there are beautiful. 
lovely to look at. Like Bob Ross, when he would paint, he would say, let's draw a happy tree or a happy cloud. But this brush stroke is dark. It is a shadow, a gloomy place. This chapter tells a story not of joy and peace and life and victory, but of death and destruction and depravity, of sorrow and suffering, of cowardice and curse. I read John 1 this week, and I was, I was reminded of John's description of Jesus in, in John 1 verses 4 and 5. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This chapter, Genesis 19, is a glimpse of the darkness. The darkness of Genesis 19 helps us to see why the calling of Abraham is so significant. Humanity is in a state of ruinous devastation because of their sin and rebellion against God. And God has a man and a family who will stand apart from that ruin, who will be used by God to turn back what has been broken, to restore what has been destroyed, to bring beauty from ashes. And that ultimately means that Genesis 19 helps us to understand the significance of the cross. The light of the cross is meant to shine in the darkness of this chapter. And that's our focus this morning. The ugly events of Genesis 19 show us three truths about the cross. The cross is necessary, the cross is sufficient, and the cross is accessible. The cross is necessary, sufficient, and accessible. So first, the cross is necessary. You've heard the phrase total depravity. Total depravity is this theological doctrine, which I think is well-grounded in scripture. I think scripture gives ample evidence to the idea of total depravity. It's attested to in scripture. So I, I think that's a right doctrine. So total depravity is this doctrine that humanity's fall into sin has had a corrupting influence, a corrupting impact on every facet of humanity. It's, it has corrupted our spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, and social selves. We are broken because of our sin. Because of sin, we are fallen in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cannot love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength because sin has ruined us. Sin has poisoned us, tainted us, every aspect of our lives. We are not just fallen in our desires, but we're also fallen in our, in our thinking, in our actions, in our words, in our relationships. Sin has corrupted every aspect of us. That's, that's the idea behind total depravity. 
And usually when I talk about total depravity, I distinguish it from utter depravity. Total depravity says that everything about me is tainted by sin. Utter depravity says that everything I do is only sinful to its fullest extent. And by God's restraining grace, humanity is not utterly depraved. We are only totally depraved. It's an important distinction. Every part of us is tainted by sin, but we are not only sinful continually to the fullest extent because God holds us back from that. Although we are all corrupted by sin, most of the time, most humans are mostly decent. Sodom is a glimpse of God removing his restraining grace. The people of Sodom are completely given over to their sinful desires. They are utterly depraved. What's remarkable is that we only get a handful of examples like this in scripture. Sin is of course rampant in scripture, but to this extent, it is relatively rare. In Noah's day, God looks at the earth and he says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so he wipes the world out with a flood. In the book of Judges, the repeated refrain in Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you get to the end of Judges, you almost can't read it. And then here in Sodom, back in chapter 13, verse 13, we were warned about the people of Sodom. The men of the city were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In chapter 18, last week's passage in chapter 18, Abraham had shown exemplary hospitality to the Lord and to the two angels. These three men come to his tent and he lavishes hospitality on them. Here in 19, the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom, they showed deplorable anti-hospitality. Two strangers enter their city and we're told that the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, notice that universal spread of the depravity in the city. Every man in the city is participating. Instead of these, these men, the men of Sodom, instead of welcoming these two strangers, they go after them. They form a violent mob and they demand to brutally violate their guests. This is anti-hospitality. It is deplorable. When Moses describes the events of this chapter, Moses, the author of Genesis, he doesn't even take time to comment on what is happening. He doesn't cast judgment on the residents of Sodom or on Lot and his family. There's no narrative aside explaining this, giving an assessment. He doesn't need to. 
He recounts what happens and it is glaringly obvious that this is unmitigated evil. What is happening in Sodom, it's, it's not only contrary to the later laws of the Mosaic Covenant, it is contrary to the laws of every civilization everywhere. What the men of Sodom are attempting to do, the way the men of Sodom are behaving is ugly, universally ugly. Look at what the men of Sodom turned themselves into by giving themselves over to their sinful desires. So they, they come to Lot's house, they make this demand, and the angels pull Lot back and strike the men with blindness. Verse 10, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So these, the, the men of Sodom are blinded by these angels. And how do they respond? They wore themselves out groping for the door. Even being struck blind doesn't prevent them from pursuing sin. The men of Sodom, their appetite for wickedness is so sharp that they continue in their quest to satisfy it. Nothing will stop them. They're like zombies. They are mindless, without a conscience. They are the walking dead. The end of sin, the final destination of sin is death. The men of Sodom, they are about to die in the looming destruction of the city, but we can see here they are already dead. Your sin, if left unchecked, if fully indulged, will dehumanize you. It will ultimately destroy you. Sin always brings death. Sin always makes us not more human, but less human. We surrender our humanity. We surrender our decency when we give ourselves to sin. Sin tastes pleasurable in the moment, but always turns bitter as it comes into us. It always poisons us. These men are dead in their sin. Meanwhile, Lot and his family have settled in and they've made a life in Sodom. They're, they are not utterly depraved like their neighbors, but they bear just as much resemblance to them as they do to their kinsman, Abraham. Lot ought to be a righteous man and yet he has come to resemble his wicked neighbors. Lot actually begins the chapter quite well. The first few verses of chapter 19, Lot looks good. He welcomes the angels into his home and he extends the same hospitality as Abraham. If you read the first few verses of chapter 18 and compare them with the first few verses of 19, Lot does the same stuff that Abraham does. Welcomes them in, washes their feet, makes them a meal, it looks good. And then when the mob comes to Lot's door and attempts to attack the two men, Lot puts himself 
in between the, the mob and his guests. He goes outside, shuts the door behind him. So this is good. Lot is, Lot is doing well here. He's pleading with the men of Sodom to restrain their wickedness. But from that point forward, things fall apart for Lot. In his narration of the account, Moses does not whitewash Lot's actions. Verse 8, Lot shamefully offers his daughters to the violent mob. This is wicked. This is an abhorrent failure on Lot's part. In order to protect these guests, he attempts to give over his daughters. That is ugly on Lot's part. In verses 15 through 17, even after the mob's abhorrent behavior and the angel's stark warning to Lot, Lot, leave the city. We are about to destroy it. Even, even after that, he is slow to leave Sodom. Instead, he lingers, verse 16. Verse 15, up, take your wife and your two daughters. Verse 16, but he lingered. Compare, compare Lot's lingering with Abraham's characteristic quick obedience. Several times in the story of Abraham, it says, Abraham rose early in the morning to obey. Abraham quickly did what the Lord asked. So Abraham hears God's word and he quickly responds, but Lot, he lingers. He's slow to respond. And then in verses 18 through 20, even with the angel's patience and continual urging, Lot pleads with them to allow him to flee only to Zoar. So they say, up, get to the hills. Sodom is down in this valley. Leave the valley, go up into the hills to be safe. And he says, no, 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 that's too far. Can't I just go over to the next city and find refuge there? Lot wants to remain in the comfort and the wealth of the valley. Remember, that's in chapter 13. That's why Lot went there in the first place. He looks around and he says, this place is paradise. Look at all the creature comforts here. That's where I want to live. And in spite of the wickedness, Lot wants to stay. I want to be in the valley with my comfort instead of the hills where there's safety. So compare Lot's intercession here, Lot's pleading with the angels, to Abraham's intercession back in chapter 18. Abraham intercedes to the Lord for Lot, for the righteous. Abraham's interceding for others, for their comfort and safety. Lot is interceding for his own comfort and his own safety. And then finally, after Lot is spared, in verses 30 through 38, he takes his daughters and he lives in a cave so Lot now is living this life of fear and withdrawal. He's afraid to live among the cities. He's afraid to live among other people. He thinks, God's going to do this again. I need to be careful where I go. So he goes off to this cave in the wilderness. He isolates himself and he does not provide a future for his daughters. And his daughters respond very badly very deplorably, they respond by getting Lot drunk and impregnating themselves. So compare that to the post-flood scene between Noah and Ham 
his son. Same thing happens. Noah is spared, gets off the ark, gets drunk, and has this unfortunate scene with his son. And now in the same way, Lot is spared, gets drunk, and his children sin against him. It's the same picture. So the daughters, they are culpable. They are guilty of this overly dramatic, hopeless assessment. So they're, they're living out in the wilderness and they say, there is not a man on earth for us. We have no hope for our future. And then how they respond, their decision to get their father drunk and impregnate themselves, that's, that's ugly. There's no excuse for that for them. But Lot is also responsible for his failure to provide for them and for his lack of self-control with the wine. Two nights in a row. So Lot and his daughters are spared. They're the only three to survive the destruction of Sodom. They are spared, but their unwise association with the wickedness of Sodom leads to great loss in property and status and dignity. Theirs are not commendable lives. I've already mentioned this at the beginning, but the world is a dark place. God did not send his son to save nice people, but sinners. Jesus did not suffer the pain and indignity of the cross because sometimes things in the world are, not, are just not quite right. But because the world is a disaster, a place of immense evil, we are not pretty good people needing a little boost. We are wretches and wrecks needing salvation. In Genesis 18, verse 20, the Lord tells Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. The outcry against all the earth is great and their sin is very grave. The outcry against me and you is great and our sin is very grave. Justice demands a payment for such wickedness and the cross provides that payment. If any sinner is going to avoid the punishment that justice demands, someone else must intercede. The cross is necessary. The cross is not only necessary, but it's sufficient. At the end of Genesis 18, God had promised Abraham that if there were even 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, he would spare the city. Chapter 19 makes it really clear that not only are there not 10 righteous people in the city, there are none. Everyone in Sodom, Lot and his family included, is a sinner and the judgment that falls is well merited. It is deserved. And yet, Lot is spared. And look at how Lot's salvation is described throughout the chapter. Verse 16. But he lingered, 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. In spite of his lingering, the Lord is merciful to him. And then in verse 21, when he asks to not flee to the hills, but rather to this little city of Zoar, the angel says, behold, I grant you this favor also. And then verse 22, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. What's going on here? The Lord is being merciful to him. The angel grants favor. And the angel even says, I can't do anything. My hands are tied until you get out of the city. I cannot do anything until you arrive there outside the city. So in spite of Lot's foolishness, he shouldn't be in Sodom in the first place. In spite of his cowardice in offering up his daughters, and in spite of his lingering, instead of immediately fleeing, God is merciful. The angel grants favor. The angel's hands are tied until Lot is safely out of the city. What's happening here? Why are the angel's hands tied? The text turns on verses 27 through 29. 27 through 29 are the, the most important pieces of this chapter for us to understand. Here's what's happening down in the valley between the, the men of Sodom, Lot and his family, these angels. Here's, what's, here's, the, here's the imminent destruction, the ugliness of sin that's occurring down in the valley. And then up on the mountain is Abraham. Verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning. Where did he go? To the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So by this time, Lot is out of the city and God has rained fire on the city. And then the comment in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered who? Abraham. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The most important event in Lot's life, certainly the most important event for this chapter of his life, was Abraham's intercession. The most important thing that ever happened for Lot is that Abraham prayed for him. Abraham stood between him and God. Lot had nothing to do with that. He wasn't even there when it happened. Lot's salvation is centered not on his actions, but on Abraham's intercession. Do you see that? God was merciful to Lot, the angel of death, excuse me, God was merciful to Lot, the angel of death, for that's surely who these angels are. These angels coming with the sword of God's judgment. Those angels grant Lot multiple favors and the, the angel's hands are tied until Lot is safely out of the city because God has a man 
who, has, who he has made his friend. And this man has pled with God on Lot's behalf the day before. And God was pleased to consent to his friend's request. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. And in the same way, God is now pleased to listen to the intercession that his son makes for us. Jesus stands at the hill on Calvary, the place on the mountain where he gave his life, where he poured out his innocent blood to atone for our ugly sins. And Jesus stands there and he pleads that atoning blood for you and for me. And it always works. The well-merited judgment for our sin is diverted from us to the cross, to Jesus. Through Jesus, the Lord is merciful to us. Through Jesus, the Lord grants us this favor also. Through Jesus, the angel who swings the sword of God's judgment can do nothing to us until we are safely out of his path. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, consequently, because of what Christ has done, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus right now stands and says, do not judge their sin. I have taken the judgment and God remembers Jesus and sends us out of the path of destruction. So the cross is necessary and the cross is sufficient, it's enough. And then finally, the cross is accessible. The men of Sodom could have been saved. Being struck with blindness could have been an opportunity for spiritual sight. When the angels stood in their way, struck them blind, their eyes wanted whatever they saw, so the angels blinded them, when that happened, they could have turned from their sin. That's what happens with the prodigal son. The prodigal son is sitting in the muck with the pigs and it says he came to his senses. He looked at his miserable condition and he realized, what am I doing here? I need to go back to my father's house. But the men of Sodom did not turn. Lot's sons-in-law could have been saved. They could have heeded Lot's call and joined him in fleeing the city, but they thought he was joking. 
Surely we'll be fine. Lot's wife could have been saved. I've always read this story of Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. Kind of like the story of the Greek goddess, uh, story of the Greek goddess Medusa, the one, the lady with the crazy snake hair, right? If anybody even glanced at her, they were turned to stone. So I've always thought of, you know, here's Lot's wife running away and she just peeks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. And I thought, wow, that's harsh. That's not what's happening here. It, the, the phrase, verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That looked back could be translated looked back longingly, turned back, returned to the city. Lot's wife rejects the rescue and returns to the rebellion. We, we talk about repentance. Repentance is a turning away from sin and turning toward God. It's as if Lot's wife is repenting of her repentance. She leaves the city and gets out of the city and says, what have I done? I have to go back, back to sin, back to rebellion, back to my own way. And so when Lot's wife looks back, she is rejecting God's grace in her life. She is rejecting salvation. She is choosing for herself death. We see this happen in scripture. We see people come to their senses. We have the, the prodigal, you have the Ninevites in the story of Jonah. Jonah walks into Nineveh and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what do they do? They repent in, in sackcloth and ashes. They ask God to spare them from the judgment. Or you see it in Paul's conversion. Paul, Paul says of himself, in 1 Timothy 1, he said, God had mercy on me as the chief of sinners, as an example. Basically saying, if God can have mercy on me, he can have mercy on anybody. Nobody was more wicked than Paul prior to his conversion, and yet God had mercy. So the cross is accessible to anybody. John 6 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The offer of salvation is for everybody. No one will ever say they wanted to be saved, they wanted Jesus to rescue them from their sin, they wanted to be, Jesus to become the Lord and treasure of their life, and Jesus said no. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you will agree with Jesus that the world is in rebellion and doomed for destruction, if you will agree with Jesus that you have participated in and contributed to that rebellion, and if you cling to Jesus as the one who has interposed his precious blood to rescue you from that danger, you will certainly be saved no matter how extensive your rebellion, no matter how far, how far gone you are, no matter how badly you have made a mess of your life, 
Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The cross is necessary, the cross is sufficient, and the cross is available. It's accessible, it's open for you. And so finally, this chapter is dark because the world is a dark place. It's not as dark as it could be, but it's always tainted and sometimes it's crushingly tainted. And this chapter is dark because our hearts are dark places. Each of us have surely contributed to the darkness around us. And again, we are not as dark as we could be, but there are corners in each of our hearts. There are skeletons in each of our closets. There are episodes from our past. There are words that have come out of our mouths. There are thoughts from our heads that elicit an outcry against us. Our sin is very great. But heaven is a place that will be filled with saints who are scoundrels. Nancy Guthrie wrote a book called Saints and Scoundrels. It's such a great concept. Saints who are scoundrels. Saints who are sinners like me, like you, saved as through fire, saved by the intercessory work of Christ, saved because Christ stands daily at the place where he met with God and pleads for us, saved because God loves to hear Christ's intercession and accept it, saved because Christ purifies from our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness and gives us his Holy Spirit to live inside us and transform us from ruined sinners into redeemed saints. Let's pray. Father, we read a chapter like this and, and we want to just close the book. We don't want to think about such things. We don't want to acknowledge that such things happen in the world and we don't want to acknowledge that this level of sin abides in our hearts. And yet it does. We are ruined sinners and that makes the gospel that much more sweet. When we look at the darkness, how bright is the light of the world. Father, would you help us to flee from our sins and hold fast to Jesus, to believe that Jesus is enough for us. In Christ we pray, amen.